I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Hey, everybody. So a few weeks ago, we did a show with C.E. Me about the policies put in place to accelerate EV adoption in China. The title was Tesla Crushing It in Car, Cap, and Trade. Check it out. In that episode, I mentioned it was a trailer, a sort of preview for one we'd do on BNF's flagship report on transport, the Electric Vehicle Outlook, or EVO. As I said then, the report looks at how electrification, shared mobility, and autonomous driving will impact road transport from now out to 2050. The report's out, and the time has come. This week, we're lucky to be joined by the lead author of EVO and head of transport for BNF, Colin McCarricker. I won't belabor the intro too much longer. I just want to say, come for the findings, stay for Colin's insightful opinions and observations. If you follow him on Twitter, you'll know what I mean. He has a way of cutting right to what really matters in a way that's easy to follow. BNF users can get the Electric Vehicle Outlook 2021 on BNF Go, on the Bloomberg Terminal, and BNF.com. As a reminder, BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear the full disclaimer at the end of the show. I'm Mark Taylor, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF Podcast. Colin, thanks for joining. Good to be here, Mark. Always a pleasure to join you on the program. It's always wonderful to have you on, Colin. We missed our January 2021 10 things to watch this this year, and we'll make up for it here. We will. We'll have a good chat. I'm looking forward to it, Mark. So back when I was an analyst and I was editing you know, my team's work and, and, and the like, I always gave the suggestion when I was editing to avoid what I would call since the dawn of time statements. You know, analysts would often begin with something like that. It was kind of off-putting and a little bit too big for the reports we were writing. But in Evo, the electric vehicle outlook, you rightly start with, quote, mobility is at the core of modern civilization and the way people and goods move impacts many aspects of life. So definitely that's true. This report's huge and far reaching. Can you tell us a bit about it and the objectives behind it? Yeah, happy to. And and I like the lead in of, of that opening line in it. And I, I did think about whether we should include that, but I, I do think it's important when you're talking about road transport, just to recognize how personal it is, right? The power system isn't that personal for a lot of people. They just want the lights to come on and, and it's it, as long as that happens, they're okay. And as long as it's not too expensive, that's okay. Mobility is personal in a way that most other areas of the energy transition and things that, that BNF works on sometimes are not. So w- what is our electric vehicle outlook? The, the kind of high level summary is that this is our outlook for all of road transport, uh, looking at how people and goods move from now all the way out to 2040. And then this year, we actually extended it out to 2050 to try and uh, look a little bit at net zero scenarios and what that means. And, and we can talk about that in a bit, but that's kind of the high level, the high level picture. Despite the name, it's not just an outlook for electric vehicles. It's an outlook for everything to do with how people and goods move on, on roads around the world in different countries. And what is the main objective with it? One of the things we're trying to do is really investigate different scenarios for how this might all play out, but also stitch together a picture that draws in the breadth of research that BNEF does. So it's we have a team that's called the electric vehicle team. This isn't just the output of that team. It's the output of that team, plus our intelligent mobility team, plus the oil team, plus the energy storage and batteries team 
plus the metals and mining team. So a lot of what we're trying to do is present an integrated house view from Bloomberg NEF about different possibilities for how, how road transport might, might evolve. And this is actually the sixth iteration we've done of this report. We started it back in 2015-16, and really back then it was only oil companies kind of commenting on the future of road transport. And in our view, they were dramatically downplaying the changes that were afoot, that we were seeing on improvements in lithium-ion batteries and rapid drops in cost. And even though it was early stages, surging demand and real real consumer interest uh, in, in electric vehicles. So at that point, we thought, look, there needs to be an independent voice digging deep into the long-term outlook for road transport and playing out what it means across all these different areas that that we were looking at. And that's kind of how the project was was born. And it's evolved a lot since then. Each year we're adding new segments. Each, each year we're adding new countries. We're looking at different impacts. So it keeps evolving because we need to stay on top of what types of questions our clients are asking us and what types of things need answers. There's some things that we know more about than we knew five or six years about and others that are that are kind of still unknowns. So it's really about kind of tying all that stuff together, having an independent voice, and then playing that out in across different across different areas. What were you trying to answer this year that's new that you weren't trying to answer in previous years? The big one this year is our, our net zero scenario. So generally what we've had is kind of our I won't call it a base case view because in economic modeling circles and, and forecasting circles, base case is kind of this thing people don't like to say. We call it our economic transition scenario, which assumes no new policies are implemented. It's a market-led transition. That's what we've generally done in the past, sort of a, a, a techno-economic analysis of adoption potential in different segments. So the big difference this year is we did a net zero scenario where we said, okay, what do you have to do? to get road transport, direct road transport emissions all the way to zero by 2050. And it's important to note there that that's direct tailpipe emissions. There are still possible upstream emissions from generating electricity and, and potentially generating hydrogen. Those are covered in other areas of BNF's long-term forecasting work. So long-term outlooks like our new energy, our new energy outlook. So that's the big change this year is to sort of say, Let's do a bit more of an exercise in working backwards to say, what speed do different segments have to go at? What has to happen over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years to stay on track for this net zero scenario by 2030? And then look at policy, or sorry, by 2050, and then look at policy recommendations that can help get you closer to that. So before we get into those scenarios a bit more and into the results of the report, let's get into the how a little bit more. Thinking back, one of my favorite episodes we've done, actually, was with Ian Berryman, and it was called Modeling the Energy Future, Ants, Birds, and Doctor Strange. And in that episode, we just talked about, the only thing we talked about was his approach to modeling new energy forecast model, NEFM, the model that powers the new energy outlook. So I know Evo is a similarly complex task that you just mentioned with all these teams collaborating and trying to get a, a coherent view on something on the road transport future. Can you tell us a bit more about the approach and how you actually got this thing done? One of the big things we have to do is kind of start early. So we, we kind of start at the end of the previous year saying, what are all the things that we want to include in it? And then work for a big chunk of the first four or five, six months of of 2021 on it and to put it all together. So there's there's definitely an element of planning and thinking ahead about what you're going to do. The summary is that it's actually slightly different what we do depending on each segment. So some segments have a very different architecture of the way you model uptake in them. For example, when we're looking at commercial vehicles, it's really driven by total cost of ownership of different competing drivetrain technologies. When we're modeling passenger vehicles, it's much more driven by upfront prices and where do those get to. But the one common theme that we have across all of what we do is that we actually start 
with, again, come back, coming back to what we opened with, how do people and goods move? So when, when we try and for, forecast or do our outlooks for the amount of, of vehicles that are going to be sold, we actually start with kilometers of mobility. How much do people, literally, how much do people move around in a different country and freight ton kilometers for how much goods move around? And then we look at all the factors that impact that over time. Uh, and those can be some things that have been consistent throughout the last 20 years or other things that, that are just starting to come in. So something like e-commerce changes the distribution of kilometers of freight between whether they're heavier trucks or lighter trucks. You might get more uh, last mile delivery going on and, and that you just start to see that in the data. So basically with with starting with kilometers, it gives us a really good baseline for this is how people and goods move. And then from there we determine how many vehicles you need in order to satisfy that demand for mobility for people and goods. And then from fleet, we get to sales. So a lot of the, and, and I think that's kind of something a bit different about the way we approach it, is that a lot of these, uh, the, a lot of the other exercises we've seen generally think of sales as just sales, but but people don't buy a car just to have a car. It's it's to serve a purpose and that purpose is, is mobility. So we kind of start with mobility and then work our way down to sales. And then within sales in each country and each year, we're creating an adoption outlook for different drivetrains. So the competing mix of different drivetrains can be is, is quite different between different segments. So in trucks, you might have CNG playing a role, uh, compressed natural gas playing a role, whereas in the passenger cars, it's really much more about um, internal combustion, hybrid, plug-in hybrid, battery electric, and, and maybe a bit of fuel cell that we're a bit pessimistic on that. So in each year, in each country, in each segment, we're building a drivetrain outlook. Uh, and that factors in all these different things around economics, but also other factors. And there's a lot about the way we kind of tie that all together in in the long-term outlook part. Uh, and and again, the exact mechanics differ a bit depending on the segment you're looking at. So it actually does sound a bit like power. You start with demand, right? You know, in power, you'd start with demand as well. Then you'd build some power plants to meet that demand, sales or drivetrains, and then you start selling megawatts, right? So you get individual unit sales, I guess. One of the things that was kind of to be honest, controversial when we started doing this was that you could use consumer adoption modeling trends to actually forecast what was going to happen. When we started doing it in 2015, 16, going and presenting a, a bass diffusion curve saying, look, it is going to follow an S curve. That was quite, we got a lot of skeptical looks at, at, the, at the time. Now everyone kind of accepts that, accepts that at least on the passenger vehicle side, this probably will be a, a, a technology adoption story. And it's just people debate over which speed and in which segments and how fast it goes in which country, but that that, that, that changeover is coming. So when we look at that part, we try and say, okay, here's, here's what's happened in places where adoption has gone quickly, and here's the parameters that led to that. And then we look at how that might play out in other countries. And then we add some kind of gating factors, and, and these are sometimes controversial. So one of the things we do, for example, is when we're, again, in the passenger vehicle segment, we have a higher, faster adoption rate for people who live in single detached homes than in people who live in high-rise multi-dwelling units, because we think people who have easy access to home charging infrastructure will probably go electric faster. Now, that it might not be the case. A government may build its way out of that constraint and just blanket a country in chargers, and then the adoption rate might be the same. But those are some of the things that we can play around with in our model and say, do we think that's a thing? Do we think that's not a thing? I think it's a thing. I mean, I, I am... I'm living proof. Last year, I bought a car and I didn't buy one because I can't get a, you know, I, I live in a row house on a, on a London street, right? So uh, I didn't have a charging option. And the deal was that 
the next car we get will be an electric one because the assumption is that there'll be a charging network by then, hopefully. I'm sure that's the calculus for a lot of people. Yeah, and I think we're just getting to that point where, I mean, you have more conversations about this with people, right? That's a double-edged sword. If you've been working on this stuff for a decade, it means everybody wants to chat about it, but it also means that you end up talking about your work a lot at at dinner, which, uh, which maybe isn't a good thing. As you said, it matters to everybody, right? So even if somebody's not necessarily interested in the S-curve, they're interested in their mode of transportation. Then I guess whether that's even public transportation, two-wheelers, cars, trucks, you, I mean, you put all of it in there. Is there different curves for different types of technologies that you're seeing? Yeah, there is. And, and so, for example, plug-in hybrids in the, in the passenger vehicle segment, more and more they look like a, a compliance strategy primarily by automakers to meet tightening fuel economy regulations. And that's really why they've surged in Europe. They're about a little over half of all the plug-in vehicle sales in Europe right now are, are, are plug-in hybrids. The other half better electrics, of course. And that's really because Europe tightened the screws on, on the CO2 regulations for cars this year, or last year, rather, in 2020, and, and is a bit more again this year. And that has really meant automakers who are skeptical of fully electric technology or who don't have their platforms fully ready to go are pushing a lot of plug-in hybrids into the market. But the dynamics of that are, are kind of much more predictable based on policy than they are, or, or sorry, the uptake of that technology is much more predicated on, on policy uh, than it is on other sort of more organic consumer demand factors. And that's, that's kind of evident in the data. So you don't get the same kind of S-curve for, for plug-in hybrids as you do for battery electrics. One, because they never get cheaper. They never get cheaper on an upfront basis than comparable internal combustion engine vehicles because they still have a combustion engine on board. And in our model, which is, is looking for the kind of cheapest path to do that, it doesn't build a lot of those beyond what is required by current compliance with, with existing policies. So that's kind of an example of a technology that adoption is going up, but it's not going up. It's, we don't think it's going up on the same kind of S-curve that you're going to get with fully electric vehicles. Makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, they just don't seem very interesting, right? Like they don't seem like a big enough change to really be all that enticing apart from a policy measure or policy incentive. That's just me speaking. Yeah. And I think for some consumers, they they are actually a good choice. If with the right needs, maybe you just only want to go on the odd long trip out out of the weekend on the weekend and and they're a good fit in that case. I think our, our skepticism is more that will automakers really build something that uh, if there isn't a, a policy push to do so, that can never get cheaper than an internal combustion engine vehicle because you do have a lot of added costs. And so increasingly what we're seeing is that automakers kind of, they're going to sell a bunch of plug-in hybrids in the next little while, but then the strategy starts to get a bit more, a bit like a barbell. You go fully electric and then you do a bunch of mild hybrids, non-pluggable, uh, the lowest level of electrification you can because that's quite a cheap way to, to get the rest of the emissions of the rest of your fleet down. And then you sell a, a fair amount of fully electric vehicles as well. This is actually one of the fascinating things that, to be honest, makes this outlook really hard to do, is that for one, on the passenger vehicle side anyway right now, in some places you're in the middle of the steep part of the curve, right? This isn't theoretical anymore. In Germany, more than 20% of, of auto sales have a plug right now. China, the latest data in June here, 2021, uh, around 15%. That's the world's largest auto market. You're really hitting kind of the steep part of the curve. So one of the things that makes it tricky there is that it's already kind of happening. This isn't something way in the future. It's kind of happening now. The other thing, of course, is that there's still a lot of policy in the mix. Like we're waiting kind of on tender hooks right now to see what the Biden administration does with fuel economy regulations in the US, because depending on what they do with those, it could go faster or slower. So 
this is where when you're doing these long-term outlooks, you have to be really clear what the exercise is. Uh, and what we're trying to do is saying, here's the policy or here's the outlook with no new policies. And then here's the net zero outlook. If you want to get to that, here's how, how much further and faster it has to go. But we recognize that in the near term, there is going to be more policy. There are going to be more changes. There's going to be a lot of different things that happen. So I think that's maybe something we haven't explained as well as we could have in the past, that that economic transition scenario assumes no new policies. And therefore, when there is a new policy, it might change the curve. So an example I always kind of give is, look, if you were building a, an outlook model in the US last year, and you somehow knew that Biden was going to win the election, great, good on you. But we didn't know that. And we're not in the business of trying to forecast elections. So we had to take sort of here's what the current policy is. And here's what what that means for adoption. So that's kind of one of the tricky things both to do and to kind of communicate what it means overall. Okay. So many different directions we could go down or so many roads we could go down, huh? No <laughs> pun intended. So much of our language is based on metaphors around transport. Once you start to see them, notice them, you can't stop seeing them everywhere. Oh, sure. <laughs> okay. So let's actually do get into the results for a second. And then we can go down a few di different roads about you know what some of the different markets are doing, some of the policies that are in place, et cetera. But as you said, your team's been doing this for six years now. Is there anything that surprised you from doing this year's Evo that you hadn't seen in previous years? I think doing this net zero scenario was a bit of an eye-opener. You've been working on this stuff for a long time, and you see how fast it's all happening, and it feels like, wow, we're, we're in the middle of a huge transition. Things are really going. But at the same time, doing the net zero scenario reminds you that it still all has to go a lot faster. And I think that was probably the biggest surprise. I mean, you sort of know that intellectually, but then you spend three months kind of in the data and you're like, well, we we have to, as a, like globally, you would have to phase out combustion vehicle sales um, completely by 2035 to stay on track for the net zero scenario. And even to do that, you need to uh, do a lot of early retirements of older vehicles in the 2040s to, to even do that. If you wanted to, and if you wanted to get to net zero without doing early retirements, you almost have to stop selling to internal combustion engine vehicles tomorrow because some vehicles that are sold now stay on the road for a very long time. So, so there's just some reality of spending that time in the data around the net zero scenario that makes you go, wow, road transport is, and especially personal road transport is probably one of the areas that um, we're most optimistic on in the, in the energy transition because you have the solutions today that can get you most of the way there. And yet it's still hard. So I think that's important kind of context in all of this that that was maybe a bit surprising again even though you might intellectually know it the other one that's kind of related is that we did some investigations this year around reducing demand for mobility everyone talks about changing over vehicles and most of the government programs are aimed at at that at having different options to do the same amount of driving and this sort of thing but we are starting to see some governments saying actually no we need to tackle how much people are driving around and we need to reduce that. And that's through a combination of active travel, more dense cities, better public transit. And I, I guess one of the other kind of surprises that I'd like to go into a bit more in the future and, and, and the sustainable transport advocates, of course, have been all over this for a, a very long time, but is just that if you can find a way to reduce demand even a little bit, it makes the job of getting to net zero a lot easier. So that means you want to promote all those things. You want to promote more cycling. You want to promote more public transit. You want to promote more density in urban areas. Uh, you're going to need all of that. 
And you're also going to need millions of electric vehicles in order to, to stay on track for the net zero scenario. So we're given the sort of timing that we're all talking about around these climate targets, we're in the phase where you have to do all of the above and you have to do all of it very quickly. And that was definitely one of the things that really stood out from this year's exercise. The other thing that was interesting, again, from, from the net zero scenario stuff is that some segments are, are, are closer to on track than others. So the main segments that we look at are uh, passenger cars, uh, light commercial vehicles, medium commercial vehicles, heavy commercial vehicles, buses, and two and three wheelers. And if you look at two and three wheelers and buses, you're actually already at pretty high rates of adoption of electric vehicles in those segments. And those ones are, are already pretty close to on track for the net zero scenario. So two and three wheelers globally, 44% of all vehicle sales last year were already electric. Uh, and buses, I think we're at almost 40%. Most of that is led out of China, but there's also quite a bit of activity spreading in other countries as well. So that was kind of another surprise is that, oh, actually, in some of these segments of road transport, we're not too far off the net zero scenario. And in others, we're miles off. So the ones like heavy commercial vehicles, the transition there has not even started and, and there's a long way to go. That was really noticeable last time. Well, last time we were in Shanghai for the, the, the BNF Shanghai Summit in 2019, there were electric scooters everywhere. It was just really, really, really prevalent. I just got to say that, that I totally, I totally, totally agree with you that once you start to look at how far there is to go, you realize that we haven't even really started yet. I, I did just some back-of-the-envelope calculations, you know, the other day, looking at our new energy outlook scenarios, right? And I just used some, you know, average numbers for how big a wind or solar farm would have to be or would be. And it took me in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of projects to get to the point that we lay out in in the new energy outlook, NEO. And it makes you realize, okay, we're not really even started yet. So yeah, definitely long way to go. Yeah. And I think, I think these long-term targets are, it's good that they're stretch targets, right? We want to keep pushing as, as to what's possible. And, and to be honest, this is kind of new turf for us at BNEF. We've, we've spent much more time saying, here's what's happening. Here's what we think it means. Here's what we think a sensible strategy is. And a lot less time on what should happen, right? Because we're, we're not advocates, we're, we're industry analysts. But this is kind of where these long-term exercises start to blend the two because you spend enough time in the data and you just feel like, okay, well then if we're going to do this, this, this is what should happen. Uh, this is what has to happen. And you find yourself using language that would be much more associated with sort of activists or, or advocates. And I find that an interesting sort of transition in, in, in my analyst career to talk about that sort of stuff. It also makes me uncomfortable sometimes too, because uh, it's not what I've thought my role is in the past. I, I mean, we're at a juncture where, uh, where you do have to accelerate all this stuff or you are, and even if you do accelerate all this stuff, you're going to deal with some pretty negative impacts from, from climate. And we're, we're, we're seeing that right now. But that tension is is getting strong between are you are you an analyst or are you advocating for a technology and and I, I think uh, that's sort of one of the things you just have to sit with as you're doing these long term outlooks. I think you can be both, right? I, I actually re listened to um, part of Fatih Birol of the IEA his speech from earlier last was it this year earlier this year yeah where he said that you know new exploration for for fossil fuels just kind of has to stop right and the IEA is you know analysts but also advocates but. Really, I think you could you could just rest on saying, if you want this to happen, 
you know, for example, net zero, then this has to happen, right? It doesn't have to be like, we have to do this. So there's no, ne- you don't necessarily have to say it like that, but it's just, if you want this, then you got to do this. Exactly. And that's, that's how we framed all of this is look, if you, if, if we take these targets seriously and we want to hit them, here's the trajectory you have to be on. And just to give you an example, one of the things we tried to do to highlight that is we said, okay, what has to happen to passenger vehicle sales to stay on track for the net zero scenario by 2030? They have to get to about 60% fully electric share by 2030. So what, what does that, what does that conceptually mean? How do you sort of bring that, make that real? Norway, very small market that's led on EVs has gone from about three or 4% to about 60% fully electric share over roughly a 10-year period. And what we're saying is that the global auto market, which was about 4% of sales were electric last year, has to go from about 4 to about 60% over the next 10. So the entire global auto market has to follow the same trajectory over the next 10 years that, that Norway followed over the last 10. That's going to be hard. There, there are going to be challenges with that. There are reasons to be optimistic about that. Things like the vehicles are a lot better. There's more charging infrastructure. There's all sorts of things that you can be optimistic about that. There's other reasons to say, well, look, Norway had a very specific tax structure. It also has a lot of single detached homes and a, and a really big spread between the cost of petrol and the cost of electricity that's quite favorable to EVs. That's hard to replicate elsewhere. But so those are some of the types of things we're trying to say, okay, let's not just talk about 2050 or net zero targets framed as 2050. Let's talk about what you have to do in the near term to stay on track for those targets. And that leads you to some of these more uh, easy to relate to examples that are in the report as well. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So do you think net zero is really the motivation for deployment? Like, I mean, let's talk about deployment, right? So like, are better cars more of a motivator or is a charging network more of a motivator or is it simply policy, you know, and what are some of the things that other markets can do maybe that don't have a lot of single family homes uh, in the near term to encourage deployment? Yeah, this kind of policy versus consumer demand poll is a question that comes up a lot. And the detractors for electric vehicle adoption will say, it's all just policy. It's just pushed onto the market by governments. And it's it's just, it's yeah, there there isn't organic consumer demand. It, the, the people who are really pro would often say, no, it's all consumer demand and it's going to take off either way, no matter what happens with policy. I think it's, it's, it's a mix of those two, right? All the people who drive EVs love them but also where there is no policy support, there are no EV sales generally. To come back to kind of the question, it is going to take off because it's a cooler, better car. I don't think there's very many things that have consumer products that have taken off entirely based on their environmental attributes, right? That can get you the, a certain percentage of buyers, but it can't get you all of them. Yeah, and it probably can't get you more than four or five. It's hard to get uh, everyone on board with something purely based on environmental metrics. But so, so it is going to take, they are going to take off because they're a better car. And that's not a future statement. They're kind of getting there now. But you do have to do a lot to help enable that, right? And one of the things, just as an example, I mentioned China sales data right now. So China, just in June, about 15% of sales fully electric, or 15% of sales were electric. That's in the world's largest auto market, a remarkable leap. Part of that is driven because China started building charging infrastructure way ahead of demand. So in December 2020, China built over 100,000 chargers 
which is more than the size of the entire US network built over 20, 30 years, depending on when you start, want to start the clock in one month. And so what they're doing is saying, look, we, we recognize this is coming. So let's, let's build the network for it. And now they start seeing, starting to see much higher levels of adoption. So it's this kind of, if you build it, they will come. And that is very true of charging infrastructure. But you need to have the, in some cases, government support or certainly a lot of buy-in from, uh, from different groups in order to get that level of build out. But they're also kind of juicing it a bit, right? We had CME on, what, last week, talking about some of the policy mechanisms they got in place, like the cap and trade for cars. What do they call it? The NEV program. Basically, that puts the onus on the manufacturers to sell EVs in that market. Is that working? Is it going in other markets as well? Yeah, and I didn't mean to imply that what's happening in China is entirely organic consumer demand. Definitely the policy is still playing a big role. China's fuel economy regulations, the NEV credit system, the city level restrictions, those are also all a big part of what's driving the Chinese market. The interesting thing is, is that's allowed there to be a number of uh, startup, very well-funded startups, but I guess we still call them startup, Chinese auto manufacturers that are producing models that do seem to have some real organic consumer demand to them, which is getting getting quite interesting. So this is where it is. It is kind of a mix. It is kind of a mix of the cooler car uh, that, that, that people love but also the policy support to help enable the supply uh, to, to get there. There's a podcast I listen to. I won't mention the name, but it, it's fantastic. And the the host often talks about the pending Apple car and how he thinks that's going to you know just take over the market when it comes out. You know, I don't know either way, but like, is there a place for startup EV? <laughs> Maybe you know Apple wouldn't be a startup in this case, but is there a case for newcomers in this market? There are a lot of newcomers. And in my view, there are too many car companies. In my view, there were probably too many car companies before all this happened. If you look at how a lot of them just kind of replicate the same, the same R&D spending, and I wouldn't say that's a, an especially efficient allocation of capital. You have, as I said, you probably had too many car companies before all this hit. Now you have, have way too many. I think, but having said that, that those startups and challengers are a big part of what has, is pushing the market forward. I think the window on the startups is closing a bit. So a bunch of them have made it through. So obviously Tesla is very established now. Other ones like Chinese ones like Neo, Xpeng, BYD, uh, upcoming ones like Rivian and Lucid. There's kind of a top tier of these startups. And again, I wouldn't put Tesla in that category. They're very established now. There's kind of a top tier of this next group of startups. Then there's going to be a large list of kind of also RANs. I think if you're entering the EV market now, you have to be entering it with a very different angle, which which I think would be Apple's angle. They would they would try and manufacture their own vehicles. They'd rely on external party. There would be some sort of major software differentiation, whether that's some combination of connectivity and autonomous driving. You would need something quite special, I think, to differentiate. I think this there was this there is this window around electrification, but it's closing fast as the established automakers really ramp up their spending and start cranking out the models in the next few years. Okay, now. Speaking of also RANs, we've got the Olympics going on in Japan, and I know Japan and Japanese companies have had high hopes and put a lot of investment into hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. But in the report, they don't really show up in a big way. Why is that? There's been a lot of discussions on this over the years, and I won't try and kind of rehash them all <laughs> over over here. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you want to, um, if you want to, ha- if you want to hear them all, you can just go on. Twitter and say something controversial and people will pounce on it on either side and you can get a great <laughs> back and forth in your Twitter mentions. But um, a, a couple reasons they don't play a big role in our economic transition scenario. One of them is around the availability of green hydrogen. So BNEF has done a lot of work we on, on green on hydrogen. We do think 
hydrogen produced from renewables is going to get a lot cheaper over the next uh, few years or the next decades. But it's still going to be a scarce resource. There's still going to be competition for its supply. And I, I think you can make a case that you should use that green hydrogen in areas where you don't have uh, a viable alternative for decarbonization. So that might be things like fertilizer. It might be things like um, shipping by ammonia. It might be aviation. Uh, it might be heavy industry. You do have a route to decarbonization for, for passenger vehicles. So putting it into passenger vehicles, I don't think is a great use of a scarce resource. So that's kind of the, from this perspective of like efficiency and designing a system and, and all this sort of stuff. But of course, there's nobody orchestrating everything around how this plays out around the world. The other reason is much more around just the numbers about where we are today. So if you look at the amount of fuel cell vehicles on the road today, I don't know, if you were to guess, Mark, there's, there's 1.2 billion cars in the world. How many fuel cell vehicles do you think there are? Oh, man. 100,000? Yeah, order of magnitude. So all, across all vehicle types, cumulative sales are around 30,000. 30, okay. The actual fleet is smaller than that, 30,000. So not, not, not bad as a, as, a, as a guess. The actual fleet is around 30,000, or the cumulative sales is around 30,000. And the first generation of Mirai's from Toyota, a lot of those are getting taken back off lease. So it's somewhere under 30,000. So if you just stay with that number for a second, and, and again, let's think about spending lots of time in the numbers and, and orders of magnitude and these sorts of things. If the number of fuel cell vehicles on the road doubled every 18 months, every 18 months all the way out to 2040, they would still only be about one to one and a half percent of all the vehicles on the road. So even if you believe that scenario, and it's really hard to double the fleet every 18 months, that would be incredibly rapid growth. But the starting point really matters. And uh, again, when we're looking at, at these, these kind of timescales we're on, uh, you'd, need, you'd need to somehow go even faster than that for them to make a material impact in the passenger vehicle segment. So there's all these other arguments about uh, infrastructure and, and efficiency and all those sorts of things that are hashed out ad nauseum. Uh, elsewhere. But I think just the raw numbers part is something that's underappreciated is that even in the scenario where these grow really rapidly, they're not a big part uh, of the vehicles on the road, at least in the passenger vehicle segment. And then there's this other thing around, there isn't a similar parallel industry that you saw with lithium ion batteries in the form of consumer electronics that's driving down the cost of fuel cell vehicle stacks. So they don't play much of a role at all on the passenger vehicle side in our, in our outlook. They might play a role in the heavy, in heavy duty long haul vehicles in the net zero scenario. So that's kind of where we see there's still a bit of a technology question, but we're actually getting more optimistic on the role that batteries are going to play in even in heavy duty long haul. So definitely a uh, participation award there, <laughs> not necessarily a medal. Okay. So where might we be wrong in Evo? What are some of the potential blind spots that, that came up? Yeah. One of them, as I mentioned, is trucks. So there's a lot of different technologies competing for for the heavy duty trucking part. So we think increasingly that fully electric trucks are going to going to play a big role and and some combination of just fully electric or maybe overhead lines or overhead catenary lines or battery swapping for trucks. Those are all sort of in the running, but that those that that can play quite a big role. We might be wrong there. There's this is at the very beginning of that transition and there's a lot of money flying around. So that could still we could still be wrong there. Another one is that is autonomous vehicles. So, and shared mobility more generally. Um, 
this is still kind of a wild card. So we do think shared mobility goes up a lot over the la- over the next 20, 30 years. So it, it rep- right now, about 3 to 4% of all kilometers traveled in cars anyway, are in some sort of shared mobility application. So that includes taxis and things like that. And in some countries, it's much higher. But globally, it's about that. We think that goes up to about 17, 18% by 2040. But there's a lot of unknowns in that, right? If you really get fully autonomous vehicles that the sort of robo-taxi scenario, it could go up a lot more than that. Um, we've been kind of skeptical about that and and sort of said, no, that's much more of a late 2030s story, though you are going to get some interesting city-level experiments in the, in the interim. Uh, once you talk about global <clears throat> car markets and global energy picture, it's probably not in the next 10 years. But again, we might be wrong there, and that, that's an interesting one. And then the last one I would just say is that it's very hard to know or quantify the pushback that you might get on some of these transitions. So if you think about think about the last couple electoral cycles in the US where coal became this really big issue, right? Like it became a sort of mark, a, a signaling device and part of the kind of culture wars and, and all this sort of stuff. And I think the data, I, I'm, this isn't my field, but I think the data says that somewhere around the number of people who work in the US coal industry, similar to the number of people who work at Arby's, uh, a mid-sized fast food fast food chain in the U.S. Not a huge employer. A lot more people work in oil and gas, and a lot more people work in 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 different parts of the internal combustion engine value chain. So, and the supply chain. So, there is going to be pushback against a bunch of this stuff, and it's just a question of what form it takes, how strong it is, how long it lasts. And that's those are things that are hard hard to quantify for us. We don't assume anything on that right now. We don't assume there's a big backlash or anything like that because we assume that the number of people who are driving electric vehicles is they're enjoying their purchase and they become part of the ones who are supporting that transition. But the reality is this stuff may be messy in the interim. In our both our outlooks, in both the scenarios that we run, oil demand peaks within the 2020s and then starts to decline the politics of what happens then is probably going to get quite complicated. And I think that's something that we just don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but we're, but we're watching it carefully. So that's kind of another blind spot is that this is a big transition involving big industries, the auto industry, auto sales are a couple, couple trillion dollars a year, uh, oil and gas, another big industry. How is that going to play out? And I think, I, I think you'd be sort of foolish to think it's all just going to go very, very smoothly. I think we're, we're going to have some, there's going to be some battles there. And, and, and we don't know exactly what, what's going to come from those. So for 2022, will your analysis be to shore up some of those blind spots to, you know, factor in some of the battles that might take place? Or what are your plans to change in the next iteration of this report? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, some of those blind spots are just going to sit as blind spots. I don't think this time next year, we're going to have a, a hugely better view on exact timelines of AVs or how, what, what, shape some pushback might might take. But I, I can say that we want to start doing more on the roadmap for net zero. So not just saying globally, here's what has to happen, but start saying on a country basis, here's what has to happen. Because our net zero scenario is actually a, a global one, whereas the, the other scenario in the report is a country by country one built bottom up. So we want to start doing a, a roadmap to net zero for different countries and with specific policy recommendations on how to get there. And then we also want to do more on infrastructure costs. Right now, we have some high-level conclusions on the amount of investment needed in infrastructure, but we want to do more on different deployment models, 
um, different support models, because increasingly that's kind of one of the areas that's really coming into focus as it becomes clear that the demand is probably there, the cars are probably there, the economics are getting good, all this sort of stuff. Um, we want to zoom in on those parts that still have some uncertainty around them. So that's that's still around the infrastructure side. And that seems to make a lot of sense with COP26 coming up. You know, you'll have all these countries making pledges or not, and you want to have a bit more clarity on, on the country level, it seems. Yeah, definitely. You know, sin- since we missed our uh, 10 predictions this year, is there anything that we should be looking for or anything that you're looking for uh, in H2 of uh, of 2021? We're on pace for a record year on EV adoption. So we're just kind of watching the numbers there. And I think you're going to probably exceed our expectations again for this year and probably have over 5 million EVs sold. So that's that's important. We just crossed 1% of all vehicles in the world being electric, which is also important. One of the things that I'm, I'm kind of watching that I think is going to be really neat in the next, a little more than just the next six months, but what happens with... Um, some of these Chinese EV companies that are trying to sell EVs in other markets outside of their own, outside of their home market as well. So some of them starting to export to Europe. And what that's doing is kind of keeping established automakers from just treating EVs as a compliance only tool. Cause there's these other sort of pressure of someone else coming in and saying, well, I, I'm, I'm willing to sell these things. I'm, and I'm going to take market share if you, if you don't amp, ramp up your efforts. So I think that I think what that signals is that the competitive dynamics are getting interesting because for a while some automakers were sort of saying no this isn't the direction we're heading that's kind of all gone now everybody's saying they're look our, our future is is electric it's just all a question of segments and timings and that's where you start to get much more interesting competitive dynamics so Ford for example coming out and saying the F one fifty Lightning the base competitive the base price is actually pretty competitive with with the with the base price of a, of a normal F-150 in the US, that's an example that they're saying, no, we're going to defend market share in the full-size pickup segment so that electrification doesn't take anything away from our, our, our real cash cow there. And again, that's just th- those things about Chinese EVs, your Chinese automakers trying to enter Europe for defending market share. It just shows that you're getting to the next phase of adoption where it's much more about competitive dynamics, uh, automaker strategies, and less questions about, oh, do people want these or not? And I think that's sort of the one of the areas that we're we're pretty interested in. And then one other thing I'm kind of watching is is at BNEF we're also expanding our our scope of our transport team coverage. So we're doing more now on on shipping and aviation. So we're starting to look more at what are the pathways around decarbonizing some of these other parts of the transport ecosystem. And and uh, I think. Most of those are still much further behind where we are on a road road transport, but there are still really interesting things happening. So we're tracking everything from procurement of electric aircraft to the types of uh, shipping vessels that are being procured. And, and that's uh, that's going to be something we're keeping a close eye on in the next uh, six, eight months as well. One final question, along with the predictions, give me your take. Are you more or less optimistic on decarbonizing transport than you were in the past? I think I'm much more optimistic on the speed of adoption of some of these alternative drivetrains, things are going really fast. There's a lot of reasons to be very optimistic on on that. I think I'm also more aware of the sheer scale of the challenge than I, than I was in the past. And again, digging into that data on the net zero scenario shows you that, yeah, you can be really optimistic about it happening fast, and it probably has to happen even faster than, than you thought to stay on track for that scenario. So my optimism... 
waxes and wanes a bit. It probably depends a bit on whether I've had two cups of coffee or one, one when you ask me that question. But uh, yeah, I think I'm more optimistic on the speed of adoption, but more aware of just how, how big the system is and how hard, how long it takes to change. Colin, always a pleasure having you on. We look forward to having you back soon. Great. Thanks, Mark. This week's show was produced by Ava Gonzalez-Isla and edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.